Well, good morning. We are in uh, week two of a series called Don't Go Solo. Uh, Don't Go Solo is the name of this series, and if, if you remember from last week, uh, the purpose of this series is to convince you from Scripture that God intends us to do life together. God intends us to do life together. Last week we talked about how, how God planted Adam in the garden. He planted Adam in the garden, and everything seemed hunky-dory. Everything was great at first until God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. Ain't that the truth? Left to himself, plenty of not-so-great things happen when it's just a man by himself. All Adam could do up to that point was name animals, you know. So so in this Don't Go Solo series... We want to learn together that God calls us as a community to be a living, earthly model of God's perfect nature and character. The people of God are to live out that perfect relationship of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit with the kind of unity among us that makes us identifiable as His body. Throughout this series, we're going to highlight different aspects of this concept of fellowship. Fellowship. The fancy New Testament word is koinonia. Koinonia. It's K-O-I-N-O-N-I-A. It's fellowship. And it's that idea that God calls us to be together. God made us so that we could be together. Not separate. Not solo. You see, this is important for us, because life, I mean, you don't have to be convinced of this. Life is so hard, and because we struggle against sin, about which we are ashamed and and guilt-ridden and feel that weight, we seek opportunities to go it alone. Going solo, going by ourselves, isolating ourselves, is something we should guard against as believers. It's, it's the concept of, of, of isolating ourselves that was demonstrated by Adam in the garden. Adam and Eve's shame in the garden is that kind of experience that time and again we experience when we try to keep ourselves away from other people because of our sin. We keep away ourselves from God because of our sin, our pride, our selfish nature. These are the kinds of things that want to, to tear us away from other people. And relationships. So in this series, we're looking to fight that temptation. To fight the temptations of the evil one who tries to keep us isolated. You see, friends, the deceiver wants you to go solo through life. He wants to keep you isolated. He wants to tempt you with ideas like, they don't know what you're going through. She wouldn't care anyway. Don't bother him with your problems. He doesn't have the time for you. Those are the kinds of lies that sin and isolation want you and I to believe in the Christian life. So today we're going to look at the truth that we can't do it on our own and that we need help. The key principle today is this. Responsibility needs to be shared. Responsibility needs to be shared. The job of life is too big to handle on our own. And we'll see today in the life of Moses 
this principle that responsibility must be shared because we're going to see him fail to meet the demands of the people under his care because he tried to go solo. Anybody watch the end of that big Tennessee game last night against number two, Kentucky? Yes. Mike Forte down here in the second, third row is a big UK fan. Sorry, Mike. If you missed it, it was a great ending. It was a, it was a men's basketball game, number 19, Tennessee, versus number 2, Kentucky. And with a game tied 65-65 to 65 at the end, Tennessee scores this clutch three-pointer and a few uh, free throws. They went on a 9-0 run to seal the deal. You should have seen the fans. It was crazy. It was, it was, it was maniacal. I mean, they were, they were all over the place, a sea of orange all over the place, you know. So now, after seeing that yesterday, I'm in the mood for March Madness. March Madness is that time of, of the year for about a month where the college national basketball tournament takes place. Every year about now, I get to live my basketball dreams vicariously through all these college kids. <clears throat> there are certainly going to be lots of games in the next month, just like that game yesterday, that come right down to the buzzer, and it's that last-second shot that will win the game. As I was thinking about that, it reminded me of all those times in my childhood when I would be alone in the gym with a basketball counting down at the end of the game saying to myself three, two, one and I would get the ball duh (laughs) and I would heave up that last second prayer of a shot to win it at the end and every single time I dreamed those dreams as a boy in the gym alone by myself I was pretending to be this guy. (laughs) I wanted to be Larry Bird so badly as a kid. He was one of the best to ever play the game. He averaged over 24 points a game, over six assists per game, ten rebounds a game. He was one of the best ever. He played not just great offense, but he played great defense, and he hustled, and he, and he passed, and he, he, he tried hard and played the game with his brain. When he was in high school, <clears throat> instead of calling it basketball, French, people from around uh, French Lick Springs, Indiana, all the folks from French Lick, instead of calling it basketball, they would say, I'm going to go watch some Larry Ball. He was the hero. He was the hero in those parts. And like lots of boys with dreams of doing something important and meaningful, I idolize that hero. In fact, I have a poster of Larry Bird in my office right now. Who doesn't want to be a hero? Who doesn't want to be a hero? As a kid, when you were asked what you wanted to be when you grew up, how did you answer? Maybe it wasn't Larry Bird. Maybe you imagined being like June Cleaver the perfect housewife and mother. Maybe you wanted to be a rock star like Elvis or the dreamy movie star like Robert Redford or Sophia Loren. Maybe you saw yourself as a professional athlete like I did. Maybe you wanted to be Broadway Joe Namath. I hope you didn't want to be Broadway Joe Namath. (laughs) Whoever it was, whoever you said you wanted to be, that was your hero. That was your hero. In America, we idolize that triumphant individual. 
We idolize that hero and that that rugged self-starter who overcomes adversity and who makes it big. We love the hero, hero who fights through the flames to carry that kid out of the burning house. We place ourselves in those individualistic dreams growing up. As if single-handedly, we are able to win the day with our heroism. That, that, that image, that image of, of the Lone Ranger riding into the sunset is clearly ingrained in our imaginations of what it means to be a hero. <laughs> but in our moments of clarity, what well, we have to realize, and it's the reason we can't go solo, there's no such thing as a Lone Ranger hero. There's no such thing. Even, even Larry Bird, if you followed the Celtics, had Kevin McHale and Robert Parrish, even Danny Ainge. Jordan had Pippen and Rodman. That heroic firefighter emerging from the flames with the kid in his arms is always backed up by others and always supported by an entire crew of people. I would go so far as to say every single great achievement in every field, while often given credit to the well-publicized and the famous few, has happened because someone else contributed somewhere along the line. The truth is that throughout history, the greatest things accomplished were done by groups of people. I would say big things, significant things, are seldom, if ever, accomplished by a single person. This is the lesson Moses learned the hard way. Moses learned that lesson the hard way much like we do. You can't do life by yourself. You can't achieve great things by yourself. It takes sharing of responsibility. Let's turn to Exodus 18th chapter if you haven't yet. We'll be in that uh, section, ha- second half, that second section of the uh, chapter there, verses 13 through 23 in Exodus, the 18th chapter. <clears throat> I want to read it again real quick here uh, so you can follow along. It's on page 53 in the Pew Bibles if you don't have it yet. Uh, we're in verse 13 of chapter 18 in Exodus. It says this, The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, Why is this, or I'm sorry, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? Verse 15, And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another. And I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Verse 17, Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you are doing is not good. You and the, and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe. 
and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. In this passage here, Moses is playing the hero. It's the end of the game, and he's got the ball in this, his hands. Everyone is gathering around him and telling him their problems. If you'll remember, they've just come out of Egypt in miraculous fashion, with the Lord leading them all the way. And now they're in the desert, wandering in the wilderness. And there are gripes and problems and, and, and there's not enough food and, and where's the water and it's dirty and we keep traveling. They're constantly moving. I mean, this manna stuff is okay, but can't we do better than something that is this weird flaky white stuff that doesn't really taste good and it's called, what is it? Can't we do better? The people are waiting for their hero. Verse 13 says, The people stood around Moses from morning till evening. They just apparently hovered around him, waiting for him to tell them what to do. And that was wearing him out. So in verse 14, When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and, and, and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? Jethro, his father-in-law, he literally asks, from what motive are you doing this? It's obviously a rhetorical question meant to point out the folly of Moses' situation. Loosely translated, Jethro, the father-in-law, says, what in the world is wrong with you? What are you thinking? He says in verse 17, this is Jethro still, what you are doing is not good. If you remember last week when we said that God looked at Adam's situation and he said, it is not good for the man to be alone. That statement about, about it not being good for Adam to be alone came on the heels of a creation account that uses the word good seven times. It said, it is good, it is good, it is very good. And then God looks at Adam's circumstances and he says... Actually, Adam, this is not good. So here's Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, looking at what's going on with Moses. And he says, this is not good. He feels like the whole burden of the world is coming down on his shoulders. I can just hear the, the different kinds of things that were brought to Moses in this kind of situation. I mean, it had to be everything from petty things like, he stole my baklava. To difficult circumstances, like marital problems and violence, unfaithfulness, medical problems, who knows? You name it, Moses was dealing with it here in Exodus. This was no picnic, and he was wearing himself out with the work, and it was a burden. I can imagine that Moses felt like five-year-old Zachary in the Sunday school class. This five-year-old kid in the Sunday school class was asked to play the role of Moses in this passage. He was asked to play the role of Moses and settle the disputes. 
And he was supposed to come up with solutions that pairs of kids from the Sunday school class would bring to him. So there stood Zachary, representing Moses, as the oracle of God. And the first pair approached their leader, Zachary, and said, We have no food. Little Zachary thought about it for just a second. And he answered confidently, Go kill some animals. But of course, as kids are wont to do, the next pair of kids came along and said, Hey, somebody's been killing our animals. I can imagine that Moses felt that sort of frustration throughout this kind of process here. So Jethro comes along. He sees the immensity of the task and, and the frustration that, that Moses is feeling. And he asks, why are you doing this? But listen to Moses' response. Verse 15. Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute... They come to me, and I decide between one person and another. And I make, them known the statu- I make them know the statutes of God's laws. It's like he's saying, I-, I can't help it. They need me. What am I supposed to do? You can, you can feel Moses' dilemma here. Friends, here's the rub with the dilemma here from Moses. Either Moses was being forced into this role of the magisterial judge and spokesperson for God by the people or he was playing the hero a little too much because he enjoyed being important being needed maybe it was both the text doesn't tell us clearly but I can imagine that both of those kinds of elements were going on the people wanted a word from God and Moses felt like he had it Perhaps the problem is not so much that Moses is coming from a place of humble service as he is from a place of selfish importance, perhaps. As if the job is too difficult and no one else can handle it. Perhaps the problem here is that the people were coming not so much from a place of true need as maybe they were a dependence on someone else's expertise and competence instead of their own. One of the things I think that this passage teaches us is that one of the crippling, the great crippling myths of the church that stems back to the same problem that Moses had is what we're going to call today the omnicompetent holy man syndrome. The omnicompetent, I can't even say it, the omnicompetent holy man syndrome. That's the non-biblical lie that pastors or or church leaders or preachers or or supposed spiritual experts can do it all, or at least are paid to, and that they somehow have a more direct line to God than you do. That syndrome is nothing new. As we see it here, it goes back to Moses. And it cripples the church because it overburdens not just leaders in churches, but it underutilizes the gifts of everyone else. You see, friends, there were three negative effects of Moses being viewed as the all-wise oracle here. First, Moses himself was overworked, and he could not cope with all he had to do. Verse 13 says, The people stood around Moses from morning till evening. Verse 18 says, in Jethro's words, You and the people with you 
will certainly wear yourselves out. For the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Moses himself was overworked, and he could not cope with all he had to do. The second negative effect is that, is that people were deprived of the swift and thorough justice that was needed. Verse 13 again. The people stood around Moses from morning till evening. Presumably day after day. I, I can imagine that people waited and waited and waited. It's the first case of judicial backlog in the Bible. We know of stories of hundreds and hundreds of cases in our judicial system waiting, waiting to be taken care of for years. In India, it's in the tens of millions of cases. And here in this passage, we know of at least 600,000 Israelite men who lived at the time. There's no way he could handle it. The swift and thorough justice that the people deserved and needed for their circumstances would not happen. Certainly they had issues that were time-sensitive or that required more than just a passing first read on a situation. I can just imagine that the problems this situation created made things worse. The third effect... And the most important one for our Don't Go Solo series is this. Other competent people were deprived of the opportunity of using their talents. Listen to Jethro's advice in 19 through 23 here. He says, Now obey my voice, I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws. For the Bible nerds among you, this is even before the Ten Commandments. So Moses wasn't an all-wise oracle. There were already statutes and laws that they knew about. He goes on and says, And make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Obviously, Jethro understood that Moses' work was important and that he must continue to teach the people about God's ways. But listen to how Jethro suggests that others, other competent people, should be given the opportunity to serve and to lead. Verse 21 says this, Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Let them use their gifts. So it will be easier for you. And they will, here's the key phrase, bear the burden with you. They will bear the burden with you. Verse 23, if you do this, God will direct you, and you will be able to endure. And all this people also will go to their place in peace. They will go home happy. You can meet the needs of the people. You see, friends, whether, whether Moses was forced into that kind of position or he kept himself there or some combination of both, competent, gifted people were deprived of the opportunity to use their talents and their spiritual insight to meet the needs of the people. Part of the good news of the gospel 
is the reality that every follower of Christ has the privilege of direct access to God. This is hardly a fringe teaching in Scripture. This is a central doctrinal teaching in Scripture that we call the priesthood of all believers. Ephesians 2 talks about how on the the cross, Christ tore down the dividing wall of hostility that keeps us not just away from Him, but also from you and from each other. Ephesians 4 and, and lots of other Scriptures talk about how Christians are gifted by God. That privilege of direct access to Christ, to God, was symbolized most vividly, perhaps, by the tearing of the curtain in the temple when Jesus died on the cross. That symbolized God saying loudly and clearly, once for all, you don't need an omnicompetent holy man to stand in the gap between you and God. You don't need a hero to come and do all the work of ministry for you. What we might need is a new syndrome called something like the incompetent sinner syndrome. Where a unified body of people like us understands that no one does this thing called life alone. No one can get the work of ministry done alone. Right now in our congregation, right now, there are hundreds of needs of people going unmet because we're not good at sharing the load sometimes. The prayer card in your bulletins doesn't begin to touch the literally hundreds of heart issues that exist among us right now. Issues like death, divorce, marital strife, financial hardship, constant depression, alcoholism, addiction to pornography, chronic physical pain. These are the exact kinds of situations with which Moses and the people were dealing here in Exodus. We need to learn to become a fellowship of people whose relationships with one another are meaningful enough that those kinds of loads, those weights, are borne together. So get involved in a small group setting. We have Sunday school classes immediately following this service that are places where we begin to share the load. We have men's ministry, women's ministry, seniors' ministry. We have ladies' circles. We have Wednesday night adult education classes. There are tons of opportunities beyond this Sunday morning time together where you and I can learn to have a relationship with one another that helps us bear the load for real. I love seeing you all here on Sundays. I do. I like to shake your hand. I like to smile. I like to say hi. I like to catch up. Very many of us, that's about where it stays. We cannot meet each other's needs with a Sunday morning handshake. We want to create kinds of places among us, smaller groups than this, where the load is lightened, where the burdens are shared, 
places where we pray for one another and our needs so that we can meaningfully relate to each other and take care of one another's needs. Places where the incompetent sinner syndrome can set in and we can share life in community with one another. Because we are people who are unified by our need for Christ's all-sufficient sacrifice. Staying isolated results in situations like Moses here in Exodus. Friends, don't go solo. (laughs) Life is too hard to go solo. Life is too hard that way. God didn't create us for that. We have two ways to respond to messages on Sundays. If you're a baptized believer and and you want to take stock in what we're doing and be a part of this fellowship, if you want to say, "I, I, I don't want to go solo, I don't want to be a lone ranger Christian, I want to be a part of the fellowship of believers so that we can meet each other's needs. And I can enjoy that kind of meaningful relationship with you. If you're an immersed believer in Jesus and you're looking for a church home, we ask that you come forward to do that. Or if you'd like to be baptized and take on the name of Jesus Christ publicly, we ask that you come and do that as we stand together to sing.